take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Malachi, chapter number three. Malachi, chapter number three. We're going to talk this morning about the spiritual discipline of giving. We've been talking about spiritual disciplines over the past several weeks, establishing some rhythms of life, some patterns of behavior conducive to growing in grace and maturing in Christ, maintaining a sense of nearness and sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving is among those disciplines. I recognize that this is a topic that tends to create some degree of discomfort. Sometimes assumptions can be made that are unfair, disconnected from what realities are. Some could assume in the worst of ways that the church is self-serving in its presentation of giving and the Bible's called to give. I would challenge you that if that is a source of some degree of hindrance to you and receiving well the message this morning that you would just give somewhere else. But we cannot sidestep the challenge of the Bible to give, to give generously in the promise of blessing that comes with an open-handedness toward others, even as God has been open-handed toward us. We've sort of begun each of these messages on the disciplines by talking about the discipline and the devotion element of the act itself. The discipline of giving is far more wide-reaching than just the act of giving itself. There is a certain degree of discipline that must permeate all of our financial life in order that we consistently create the kind of margin that allows for us to be able to give open-handedly, even as God has given so generously to us. This is one of those areas where discipline simply cannot be overlooked, and the extent to which discipline must be applied is far more wide-reaching than what we'll have the time to address in this morning's message. But I would challenge you that if you are among the many that have a tendency to isolate your financial or material life from your relationship with Jesus, that you would dismiss that compartmentalization and you would understand that Jesus is not Lord over part of our life, but over all of our life, and that you would look to the Word and its wisdom as to how to manage well what God has entrusted to you. What you'll find is that not only is there margin that you can be open-handed toward the needs that may arise around you, but there is considerable margin that you might be a wise and thrifty saver as well as meeting the needs that do arise in life. So there's a discipline element that's a big deal here. Then there's a devotional element of of giving. I'm sort of an old guy when it comes to financial stuff. I still write checks. Like I understand people don't do that anymore. And I still sit down once a month and write out checks and write addresses on real paper envelopes and put real stamps on the envelopes and put them in a real mailbox to be delivered by a real postal service employee. I realize that means I'm like from the Stone Age or something like that. But if you've ever been in life in a situation where you didn't know how you were going to pay the bills, there's a certain delight you take in actually paying the bills. There's something about the process of putting those in the mailbox and turning up that flag that I find incredibly satisfying. 
And in the process of all of that, the process of, of giving, writing out that check and all that is involved in preparation for that moment, it's an opportunity for me personally, I suspect this is true for many others as well, to be reminded that it's not just 10% of what I have that belongs to the Lord, but that everything I have belongs to him. And it's a, it's a rare opportunity to be a part of this physical act. It's an acknowledgement that, God, I value you more than what this world values the most. And to stop and to dream with wild-eyed imagination at the ways in which God might be pleased through the generosity of his people to expand his kingdom far and wide. There will be missionaries in places among people that I will never know personally who will be directly touched by this gift. Paul talks about partnership in the gospel. Through your generosity, there is opportunity to create these unseen partnerships in the gospel. In my imagination, those connections are made in heaven around the throne of Jesus as we are introduced to those impacted by our generosity in some obscure way. There is this unseen partnership in the gospel established that we're introduced to and celebrating in eternity. This is one of those disciplines that is measurable, that is tangible, that provides for us an occasion to examine ourselves and, and an opportunity for us to say in real measurable ways, God, you are of greater value than anything this world can offer. Without further ado, let's look at Matthew chapter 3 verses, sorry, Malachi chapter 3 verses 7 through 12. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Malachi 3, 7 through 12. The Bible says here, Since the days of your fathers, you've turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field and will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. I mentioned a moment ago, I trust that you are well aware of the discomfort that talking about money financial issues, giving, tithing can create. I think there are about four reasons that we're discomforted by this topic. Unpacking them here at the outset of our time together might prove to be helpful, so here we go. On the most basic level, money conversation just makes us uncomfortable. There are some generational factors that are a part of the equation here, 
And there's a certain extent to which we expect privacy in our financial life. There's a great difference even between the way I regard financial issues and the privacy that comes with it and even in like my dad. Like in, in pastor world, you get pretty accustomed to the fact that everyone knows what your annual income is, right? Which has never been an issue to me. It's never been a problem for me. I've never really balked at that or had a problem with that. But my daddy thinks that is the most wretched, awful, dreadful thing in the world. And he's walking with Jesus. But I think if you ask him what his income was, he'd probably punch you. Generationally, there, there is an expectation of privacy there that, that's even greater, I think, in his generation than, than in mine. So just in general, financial talk makes us uncomfortable. And some of that can be, to some extent, reasonable because there's an expectation of privacy in our life. Secondly, I think there can be misread motivations, like the idea that this is self-serving when pastors talk about giving, talk about money, those sorts of things. I would note that in my now nearly five years of serving as your pastor, you can count on one hand with some fingers left over the number of times we've talked about the spiritual discipline of giving. Ordinarily, I preach on giving as often as it comes up in the text. And to be honest, it just doesn't come up in the text all that often. In fact, except outside a spiritual discipline series talking about some basics of discipleship, it's a rare opportunity to talk about giving that is presented to you by the text of Scripture. Jesus talks a great deal about money, but the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus is exclusive to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So opportunities to talk through matters of finance are really rare. As I said in the beginning of our time together, if your idea that somehow preaching on giving is, is self-serving, then give somewhere else, but by all means give according to the commandment of the Scripture. There's a third thing, and I find this coming up in conversation far more often in the last five or six years than even in the early part of, of my ministry. There is confusion about tithing in the Old Testament versus the giving that God calls us to under the new covenant. For some of you, this is not a question or an issue. You might be somewhat dismissive of the debate in and of itself. But for the sake of those who are wondering, let's unpack that for just a moment. There is a great deal of giving prescribed under the old covenant. Understand that the covenant that God enters into with Israel is a national covenant. So there is a part of giving that is prescribed for the upkeep of the temple and the ceremonial system, providing for the needs of Levitical priest. There is a part of giving that is prescribed for things that we might understand to be regular tax expenses incurred by a society or a nation. We, we are not a national people as the church. We are a people of every tongue and tribe and nation. And so what has been abolished without question under the new covenant are those elements of giving prescribed specific to national needs. What remains is what is described here as the tithe, 
which was specifically that portion of one's income assigned to maintaining the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial or ceremonial system within the temple. Tithe over the course of the Old Testament comes to be a way of referencing that specific part of one's income that was committed unto the Lord for the maintenance of the priesthood and the ceremonial system in the temple. It's spoken to directly in the closing verses of the book of Leviticus. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 and following, this is what the Bible says. Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man decides to redeem any part of this tenth, he must add a fifth to its value. Every tenth animal from the herd or flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He isn't to inspect whether it's good or bad, and he isn't to make a substitution for it. But if he does, both the animal and its substitute will be holy. They cannot be redeemed. A tenth of all of a person's produce, all of his income in modern terminology, he is to be rendered unto the Lord. Not the full 30-some-odd percent that is prescribed under the Old Covenant, but that 10% that was specific to ministry needs focused on the worship of God. So the question becomes, is tithing, is giving 10%, is this a part of the new covenant experience of those who follow after Jesus? Well, the answer is yes and no. We have been called under the covenant of grace, under the new covenant, to give even beyond. What, what happens in the new covenant is that everything prescribed in the old covenant has been abolished and then amplified. If, if under the law, 10% given precisely was what God's people were called to, now under the new covenant, that 10% becomes the floor for us in our giving. Think of Jesus' teaching ministry and how it serves to amplify the command of the old covenant. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you so much as look at a woman lustfully, you have committed the act of adultery in your heart. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you that if you so much as harbor bitterness or hostility in your heart, you have committed the act of murder. We might say if we mirror the teaching ministry of Jesus concerning the act of giving under the new covenant, you have heard it said, give 10% unto the Lord. But I say unto you, everything that you have belongs to Jesus. So in terms of principle, it is good that you would exercise this pattern of giving 10%. If grace is greater than the law, surely 10% would be for us the floor. There is a liberty about giving that is prescribed to us under the new covenant in the New Testament. There's a greater degree of freedom about our giving under the new covenant than under the old. But it seems abundantly clear to me that that old 10% precisely given number would be for us the floor and most assuredly not the ceiling. 
There are a couple of passages that are often cited in teaching giving 10% under the new covenant, specifically the fact that Abraham gives a tithe of all he has to Melchizedek, that priest forever in whose lineage Jesus serves as our great high priest. Then there's Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, you tithe to the mint and the cumin while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. What's being described there is they're going into their herb garden and they're plucking off one-tenth of all of the leaves from the herbs in their herb garden and they're giving those as a tithe while simultaneously failing to love God and to love their neighbor. And Jesus says, you ought to have done these things. You should tithe, but you oughtn't neglect the weightier matters of the law, loving God and loving your neighbor. So there can be a lot of opportunity for confusion here. And sometimes I think in the whole rigmarole of debating tithing under the old covenant and giving under the new covenant, there's, there's this deceptive sense of liberty to leave off giving altogether that can be adopted by those who are merely listening in on the conversation but not actively participating. What I want you to hear from me as your pastor is that after meeting all of this out, after examining the practices of giving under the Old Covenant and the teachings of Jesus with regards to giving in the New Testament, what seems abundantly clear is that God has called his people to generosity. There's a fourth thing that I think creates a certain level of discomfort in discussing matters of giving, and it's the prosperity gospel. This distortion of, this misrepresentation of the message of the gospel that says if you just give the right amount and you just believe the right stuff and you pray the right prayerful incantation, you will be healthy and wealthy for all of your days. Let's just, let's just cite, let's just note that the prosperity gospel is a damnable heresy born out of hell itself. Dismiss it altogether and move forward boldly embracing the promises of God of blessing toward those who are generous and a curse toward those who are closed-handed in spite of God's open-handedness with them. So those are four issues that I th think create some confusion and discomfort when approaching this issue. As I mentioned a moment ago, what is crystal clear about this, there can be no debate. This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance. God has called his people to generosity. Look back to verse 7. Since the days of your fathers, you've turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask how can we return? Let's unpack this a little bit because what's happening in the background of Malachi 3 I think can be helpful for us in appreciating the way giving as a discipline affords for us an opportunity for some really great and healthy self-examination. Since the days of your fathers is Malachi's way of evoking the history of Israel. This is not just an issue for you Israelites that began today in the 4th century B.C. as Malachi's preaching. This has been an issue for you Israelites since the very inception of the nation of Israel itself. 
If you remember the history of Israel, there was a period of time in the 6th century BC when the people of Israel were carried away captive into Babylon. They experienced 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And then according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, were enabled to return to the land. Under the leadership of men like Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the city walls in Jerusalem and they reconstructed the temple. They returned to the land. In their mind, returning to the land meant returning to the Lord. And yet here God says, return to me and I will return to you. They're perplexed at this statement. They say, how? How in the world can we return? We're already here. Though for Israel, their geographic location had changed. The condition of their heart had not. In spite of the fact that they are very much back in the promised land, God is still inviting that they would return to him. Verse 8, God asks, going further, Will a man rob God? How can we return? And then God asks, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. The fact that the tithe and the contributions that are referenced in our passage were specific to that portion that Israel was to give that belonged to the Lord for spiritual service, the priesthood, and the ceremonies make this all the more literal. It emphasizes what God is asking. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? People of Israel ask again, how do we rob you? In the Hebrew language, there's a few ways that you can ask the question, how? This is a relatively rare way of asking how, but it's almost always a sort of incredulous question. It's as though they ask, how in the world did we rob you? God responds in verse 8, by not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. They had not drawn the connection in their experience living under a curse between what they were feeling on a daily basis and, and the actions, their own actions that underlie the curse that God had placed upon them. They're back in the promised land. They believe themselves to have returned to God. And here's the interesting thing. They seem to be well aware of the curse. They recognize that they're living absent the blessing of God. But what God is pressing at here in our passage is that they're absent God himself. They had the ability to discern the absence of God's blessing, but they had failed to recognize the absence of their God. And so the Lord points to this part of our life that is, again, measurable and tangible. You can evaluate the extent to which you are drawing near through this discipline far more effectively than other areas of your life, far more effectively than with other spiritual disciplines. If you're assessing your prayer life, How's your prayer life? That that is a very subjective and relative thing to assess, right? And we tend to be very gracious with ourselves, but the reality is self-assessment with regards to prayer is like nailing jello to the wall. 
Even our Bible reading life has become somewhat easier to evaluate because of technology. I know because I've checked the boxes in my Bible reading app when I have read the passage for that day. But even that affords for the ability to read in a regimented way that's disconnected from any sincerity of heart. I may read without concerning myself with the worship of the God of the Bible or the nourishment of our soul. But there is such deliberate action in the course of giving. It is so easily monitored. It is so measurable. It is so tangible. There is little occasion for the kind of subjectivity of assessment that comes with other spiritual disciplines. So I don't want to, I don't want to ride this horse too far. But if, if, you're, if you're the kind of person, if you're a person who's constantly running into some kind of financial hardship or distress. You're not a giver, and you're constantly running into financial hardship or distress. Would you, this morning, just make a little room for the possibility that the financial hardship you're consistently experiencing is the product of your resistance to giving with any level of generosity? And again, this is really a discipline over all of our financial life issue. You know, the thing about tithing as a principle under the old covenant is that it's proportionate to income, right? Like, I would be a major fan of a United States government system that, that was proportionate to all levels of income instead of increasing at increased levels of income. Like, I would be over the moon, ecstatic, and excited for a flat tax rate. It seems patently fair, right? And so what I'm driving at here is this is really not a resources issue. I can remember standing in the vestibule of our little country church and saying, offhanded, I promise this was totally innocent. I meant nothing by it. I was not trying to get something by. I wasn't trying to skate on giving in any way. But I remember standing there, my pastor was there, and thankfully, he's a friend, and I said, you know, I'm only making about $1,000 a month. I'm not giving anything. That $100 is not gonna really have any impact within the life of this church. And he said, in a very cutting way, is my friend, if God can't trust you, Brother Wade, with that $1,000, what in the world makes you think he's gonna trust you with 10,000? And I've, I've never forgotten that principle. And sure enough, God has been pleased to honor that along the way. It runs parallel to the principle. My daddy would repeat again and again and again as a boy, if you can't save money making $10,000 a year, son, you'll never save money making $100,000 a year. There are some principles of discipline that are in play here that when well implemented, you will find the margin and the capacity to give with an open hand. It's easy to say, well, I'm under a curse. These are hard days. These are lean years. My environment is not conducive to profitability. These are hard times, so I will leave off giving. And I'm just challenging you here this morning to draw some connections in your heart and mind between your hands closed toward generosity and God's hand perhaps closed toward meeting all your needs. How do we rob God by not making the payment of the 10th and the contributions? God says here, you are suffering under curse, the whole nation. God causes people to generosity regardless of how you see or regard that. Come back to that thought in just a moment. Implicit in our passage is the teaching that giving is an act of worship. 
If you ask me, what is the book of Malachi about, I would say to you it's about worship. It's about the priesthood and their function within worship. It's about the sincerity of heart of the people of God and their engagement in worship. Matthew is a book, Malachi rather, I'm going to continue to call Malachi Matthew this morning. So let's just, if I say Matthew, just know I mean Malachi, right? I'll stop correcting it. We'll just roll right on. Malachi is a book that is about worship. And I would add here, there is a personal and corporate aspect to our worship through giving. Personally, again, it is an opportunity for us to say, God, I value you more than the thing this world values the most. And to allow that our imaginations run wild at the prospect of creating unseen partnerships in the gospel far and wide that many would know Christ as Savior of their life. There's that personal component. But there is also a corporate element to giving as an act of worship. I have observed that in the aftermath of COVID, as the offering plates went away during COVID out of fear of transmitting the virus, how many of the things that we did during COVID seem so silly now. But for many churches, those offering plates haven't come back. And and the aspect of corporately worshiping through giving is now gone. I, I think that there's danger in that. I don't find that to be terribly healthy. I'll give you a great example of that in this year's Lottie Moon Christmas Offering Goal. This is my fifth Lottie Moon to be with you as your pastor, and that's a big deal for us. If you're new to us, the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering Goal Uh, is an offering that goes exclusively to international missionaries and international missions. None of those resources stay here. It is all getting away from here as fast as it possibly can. In fact, this week, all of what you gave to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering will be out of our hands and into the coffers of the International Mission Board where it can resource missionaries serving in dark and dangerous and difficult places. Many people hearing the message of the gospel through your generosity to give in that way. Lottie Moon is a big deal for us as a congregation. It took us longer this year to meet our Lottie Moon goal than it has in the past three years. In the past three years before Christmas, we have met the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goal. And this is not our biggest goal. It is our largest goal of $350,000, but this is not the most we have ever given through our Lottie Moon Christmas offering toward Uh, the Lottie Moon goal. In other words, the goal has never been more than 350,000, but we have given well in excess of that. Last year was a banner year for giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Here's the thing that made me most excited about this year's offering. This was, to the best of my recollection, the first year that there were no six-figure gifts toward the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which means that achieving that goal was the collective work of middle-class, blue-collar people laboring away and giving sacrificially of what God had entrusted to them. This might, it took us longer, and it was a little less than last year, but this might be the healthiest Lottie Moon Christmas offering goal we have ever received as a congregation. A note to us of the collective power of God's people when generously giving as God has called us. Now, isn't that exciting? Does that not fire you up 
I know that I'm limited in my resources. There's just so much that one man can do. You may have the same sensation, but together, together for the gospel, to see the kingdom of Jesus expanded. Can you imagine what God can do through this little congregation at McInvale and Bahalia when we pool our energies, our time, our talents, our efforts to see the message of the gospel sound forth to the very ends of the earth? There is a private, But there is, in addition, a very important corporate aspect to our worship in giving. God calls his people to generosity. Giving is an act of worship. Thirdly, greed comes with a curse. Here, their environment had changed. There's drought. Geopolitically, things were different in the days of Malachi than they had been during more prosperous seasons. And the people could not manage to draw the connection between their greed, their unwillingness to give, and what they were experiencing on a regular basis. When we are open-handed, you will experience God's grace to provide and meet every need in unexpected and unimaginable ways. But when you resort to a greed that says, I will not let go of what God has entrusted to me, you will find that the circumstances of your life and your environment will work against you. You will never get ahead by trying to shortchange the God of heaven. People like to say, Christians like to say, we have slogans like, you can't outgive God, and that is most assuredly true. But I would add to that the contrasting statement that you will not advance yourself, improve your wealth, or move ahead in terms of prosperity by trying to shortchange the God of heaven. You'll get a lot farther with 90% and God's favor than you ever will with 100% and his curse. So God causes people to generosity. Giving is an act of worship. Greed comes with a curse. Fourth and lastly, generosity comes with a blessing. And again, we don't need to tremble at making such a statement because of the prosperity gospel. Put our stake in biblical ground. We note the promise of the scripture in Malachi 3. Test me and try me. We used to sing in our little country church, trust me, try me, test me, try me. Prove me, saith the Lord of hosts. We ought to be willing to do just that. There is a subtle change in the nature of giving that happens Old to New Testament. We've referred to this already. If you ask me what is the primary giving passage in the Old Testament, I would say Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. But if you ask me what is the primary giving passage in the New Testament, I would point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 12. Here the principle of Malachi 3 is restated only slightly differently. Verse 6 says, remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
That is the fundamental difference in giving under the old covenant and giving under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, giving is giving by compulsion. But under the new covenant, we give not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he scattered, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Here again is the subtle difference. Under the old covenant, test me and try me. You give and I will bless. You won't outgive God, as we like to say. But there is an added element you might have noticed in the verses we just read. Malachi's passage, one is blessed because of giving. But in what Paul describes here under the new covenant, we are blessed for giving. You have been enriched. Your needs have been met. God has been open-handed with you. Therefore, be open-handed toward others, enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Remember this. The person who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but the person who sows generously will reap generously. You give regularly and generously, and God will provide in ways you never expected or imagined. You could poll this congregation, people who have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, who have been giving consistently, have experienced in their lives personally the grace of God to meet all their needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There are countless examples from our married life for Brandy and I of ways that God met our needs in unexpected, surprising ways. Most obvious example is one that I share often. You may have heard before if you've been around for a long time. My first ministry, Brandy and I were Raymond Noodles and Kool-Aid Broke. If you've ever been Raymond Noodles and Kool-Aid Broke, you know exactly what I mean. If you ever see your pastor eating Raymond Noodles, it's gotten really bad. We'd come to a month where we didn't know how we were going to make the ends meet. I was a seminary student. She was a nursing student. We had a small child. And I was making a whopping total of $22,500 a year. That's pre-tax, by the way. And we were $900 short. We might as well have been $9 million short. But we resolved together to give as the Lord had commanded us to give and to trust him with whatever the outcome might be. Now, I'm not pastoring a church full of people that can stroke a check for $900 in rural, far west Octibaha County. But in the days after, there was a member of our church that showed up with a check for $900. There have been a lot of occasions, but I'm telling you, for us, that is the most memorable example 
of God meeting our need. Over time, God provides, your level of comfort improves, your income improves, and, and you can forget, you can forget, you can desensitize to the reality of living from God's hand to our mouth. It's true, regardless of what your bottom line says, but I'm telling you, there, there's something about those days of being forever sensitive to the provision of God and our desperate need for it that we sort of miss from time to time. God has been faithful through the years to meet all our needs according to his riches and glory. And there are stories like that for people all over this congregation who've experienced God's provision in light of their generosity, open-handedness, trusting the Lord to meet their needs in incredible ways. God causes people to generosity. Giving is an act of worship. Greed comes with a curse, but make no mistake, generosity always comes with a blessing. I, I mentioned a couple of times along the way that this is a discipline that allows for some self-examination. You remember when Jesus met the rich young ruler? He was a rich young man who comes to Jesus in the Gospels and he said, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commands. He basically says, here's the Ten Commandments, do them. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done all these, so I must be in good shape. Jesus says, no, what you must do now is sell all that you have and give to the poor. Now, Jesus doesn't call us to sell everything that we have and give it away to the poor. What Jesus is doing is what he always does masterfully. He's asking probing questions that get at the heart of the issue with the person to whom he speaks. Jesus says, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the rich young ruler is said to have gone away sorrowful of heart. He valued his stuff, his material wealth, his possessions more than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we mentioned a few of the reasons that talking about financial issues can, can bring a level of discomfort, and I understand those, and there's a certain degree of reasonability to most of those that we describe. But here's a hard reality. The reason talking about finances or giving or money more broadly in a setting like this, the reason that makes some people uncomfortable is because they have valued the stuff of this world over the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is to be our great treasure, the pearl of great price for whom we would give it all away. If our Lord and Master were to stand before this congregation today and say, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, would you leave sad? Or could you say, Jesus is enough? That's the kind of self-assessment Jesus called the rich young ruler to. And, and it's the kind of self-assessment we have occasion to apply in light of the spiritual discipline of giving and what the Lord has called us to be about in the very passage that we've read this morning. I want that Jesus would be the treasure of our heart 
that we would behold him and regard him of gra- as, as bearing greater value than anything this world could ever hope or imagine to afford. It's all his anyway. Remember the way the new covenant amplifies the call to obedience of the law. You've heard it said, you must give 10% a tithe of all you have. But I say to you that everything you and I have belongs to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the teaching of these principles. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to regard Jesus as our great treasure, our pearl of great price. Lord, I I pray that you would draw near to us this morning, that you'd help us to examine ourselves. Jesus taught us, Lord, that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see ourselves and our priorities as they truly are. May Jesus be our great treasure. We ask it in the power of his holy name. Amen.